if you want to turn in your Bibles today, we're going to be back in Exodus chapter 20, looking at the 13th verse today, studying the 6th commandment, you shall not murder. As I opened up the news this morning after I woke up and I was letting the coffee infuse my brain and get it ready to do my final sermon edit, I was looking at the top news stories of the day. And actually, I took a screenshot of them on my phone here, and these are the top news stories right now in our nation. Nightclub shooting, arrest rapper, second suspect in, ca- in custody after 28 hurt in an Arkansas melee. Arrest made in connection to Arkansas club shooting. Chicago police, heavily armed man shot and killed by an officer. Doctor killed in New York City hospital shooting. A fisherman charged in light in wife's lake killing despite no body. These are the top headlines in our nation this morning on foxnews.com. All about murder. And that's the subject of today's message. And I know that the word murder immediately strikes within our hearts and it's almost like a gut punch when we hear the word murder. It's a visceral reaction. You have that sinking feeling in your gut when you hear that. So I'm going to begin today's message with a pop quiz. And I want you to feel free to call out the names of the people if you know them. In the 20th century, that's the the year 1900 to 1999, which three world leaders that existed during that time were responsible for the most deaths or arguably the most murders? Does anybody know? Hitler is number three, 20 million. He's number three? He's number three. Everybody would think he'd be top, but he's number three. Who? Mao Zedong is number one. 75 million people he killed and murdered. Who's Stalin? Stalin. Stalin is number two, 62 million. Stalin was so cynical about killing his people, he came up with a saying that said, you know, one death is a tragedy. A million, that's just a statistic. That's how cynical and evil he was regarding the murder of his own people. Who was the first one? First one was Mao Zedong in China. These three world leaders are responsible for 157 million deaths or murders in the 20th century. Just three men. That's half of our nation's population. This pales, however, to the greatest cause of murder in the 20th century and into modern day, and that would be elective abortion. Elective abortion is defined as using abortion as birth control. This does not count the the danger to the mother reason or rape or incest reason, which, by the way, those three reasons make up less than 5% of all abortions worldwide. But elective abortion worldwide has murdered 1 to 2 billion, billion, people since the 1960s. The one billion is a hard fact, but the number is variable because in the third world they don't track it. So that's an estimation, but the one billion is a hard number from the developed world of of health departments that track this. What we don't realize is that God's command about this is very, very simple. It's only four words and it has very little ambiguity. In Exodus 20, verse 13, God said, you shall not murder. And Father God, I ask, Lord, that as I unpack 
this very difficult subject with all of its, its rabbit trails we can run down and all the but what if that we can bring to it, that you will give us clarity in what your word calls murder. I ask, Father, that you will take a people, we are a people that are desensitized to this. We see so many acts of violence on television, so many acts of violence in the news, that we become desensitized to the value of human life. I ask, Father, that you restore that to us this morning. That you help us to see the reason you gave us this commandment, Father. I ask this in your name. Amen. Today we're going to begin the study of the shall nots part of the Ten Commandments. And the shall nots apply to how we treat each other and how civilized society is to act as a whole. The shall nots are even more powerful when you consider the truth that they are trying to protect. And in this case, God is trying to protect within us the right to life. The sixth commandment is meant to give us the freedom to exist without fear of someone harming you or your loved ones for selfish reasons. And today we're going to explore this idea from its biblical, its moral, and its philosophical standpoints and why it's so important to God that he put this command in his big ten commandments for us. First, let's look at the biblical or theological truth connected with this idea, you shall not murder. First, we have to define terms. What is killing and what is murder? Many of you here learned the Bible in the King James translation. And the King James was written in 19, or excuse me, 1611. And it is a beautiful and very accurate translation of the Holy Scriptures. However, it's written in 1611 English. And the English language has changed significantly in the last 406 years. The King James translation translates this verse as, Thou shalt not kill. So what does the Bible really mean in this commandment? Does that mean that all killing is forbidden? Well, let's look at what the original language said. The original Hebrew word used for the termination of life in this verse is ratshek. Ratshek is a term rarely used in the Bible, and every single time it is used, it's a word that is intended to convey a premeditated or hate-filled termination of life, what we would call murder today. The Hebrew language also has other words for termination of life that convey simply the idea of killing or even manslaughter, but doesn't rise to the level of murder. And by God giving us this command with this particular word, God is not forbidding all killing. Human beings, for example, we need to kill in order to eat, don't we? We have to kill animals, whether, or we have to kill a plant. We would kill a human predator that would do harm to us or our loved ones. So not all killing is forbidden. You know, just north of here in Coral City, there have been several sightings of a large black bear. So there's a large black bear just in our immediate vicinity. It keeps popping its head up and people are taking pictures of it as they drive by. Now, if this bear decides to go into your backyard today and jump in your swimming pool with your children, I hope that you want to deal decisively with that situation. Probably with a couple of 12-gauge slugs and take care of it and probably drain your pool and a new pool filter. You're going to have to, to deal with this to protect your your children, and you're going to have to kill in order to do it. 
We also eradicate insects and other vermins that carry disease. So that this law, like any other law, we need to look at it from God's perspective because God's word and his law are direct reflections of his character and his holiness. And if God is against killing all human beings, then God broke his own law, didn't he? He broke his own law to free Israel from captivity, and he broke his own law in the death of the firstborn. Furthermore, if God is against all killing, then he again breaks his own law when he orders Israel to enter the promised land. He ordered them to kill men, women, children, a family dog. Everything had to go when they entered the promised land because God wanted to wipe evil from the earth at that time. So we can't look at this command as a universal prohibition against all killing, and particularly against all killing of human beings, as God cannot order someone to do something that is against his own character. He can't do it. We'll really get a little further into this idea of when it's permissible to take human life in a few minutes, but first we need to establish why murder is bad in God's eyes. The first reason that it's bad is because you and I are made in the image of God. The theological term is called imago Dei. It's a Latin that means image of God, and it comes from Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says, So God created mankind in his own image, and in the image of God he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, the image of God is understand, understood to mean several things. Number one is that we hold a special place in creation that is different than any other physical being on this planet. For example, human beings were created with higher abilities of reason. We were created with higher abilities of creativity. And we were created with an, a self-awareness that separates us from everyone else in the animal kingdom. Job 32.28 said it's a spirit within a man, the breath of the Almighty, that gives him understanding. So when God breathed within us that the breath of life, he breathed within us a spirit that separates us from all other uh, beings in creation. Number two, human beings have a God consciousness and a sense of right or wrong that doesn't exist anywhere else in creation. You don't see a, a, a lion taking down a gazelle to have his dinner and then crying that he had to kill it. He doesn't, a, a lion, a predator doesn't have that sense of guilt over, take, or over having to kill. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes that God has put eternity into the hearts of man. And what he meant by that is that he has put this, his consciousness and morality within us that we understand that even if we have to kill something or kill someone in, a, in an act of self-defense or, or to eat, that we, we have a little bit of sorrow within us that we had to do that. Since human beings have this imago day, their lives, particularly innocent lives, are precious in God's sight and therefore must be protected. That's the first reason why there is a commandment not to murder. The second reason why God gave us this command is that murder violates God's sovereignty. I remember I had a, a friend in the military. He came from Texas and there's a saying in Texas that said, some men just need killing. And he was talking about that some men are so wicked, so useless, and such a drain on society that somebody just has to put a bullet in them. 
that we just need to wipe those people off the face of the earth. And obviously I don't agree with that. But it shows a very human mindset when it comes to how we view each other. What we have to remember is that God is the author of life. He has placed all of us here. All of us. But murder is humanity's way of saying that we know better than God. And that this person or this people group needs to get out of my way so I can have a better life. That's what Hitler thought. And I mentioned Adolf Hitler as killing 20 million people. Do you know who else killed 20 million people in the 17 to 1800s? European Americans, when they wiped out the Indian tribes. 20 million murdered so they can have their land. So it's not just despots. Some of our ancestors have that guilt on them also. That should change how we view Native Americans today. Quick question. What was the second commandment level sin recorded in the Bible? Anybody know? After they ate the, after they ate the fruit, what was the second sin? Murder. Cain and Abel, right? That brings us to our next theological point, is that Satan is the originator of murder. Now, Satan is not God number two. Satan is not um, the yang to God's yin. He's not the opposite God, and you have the good God and, and the evil God. And he's the opposite God. Satan is a created being. He's a cherub. He's a, he's a higher level of being than we are, but he is still a created being by God. He is not a separate God from God. So God still holds sovereignty over Satan. And we have to remember this in, in our dealings with each other, that we can't blame the devil for things, that, that he has God and all this power. The only thing the devil can do is tempt. The only thing the devil can do is, is entice us to sin. And Satan is the originator of murder. And Jesus, in confronting the religious leaders who were plotting to murder him, said this to them. He said, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He, Satan, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. You see, Satan loves murder. He loves murder because it destroys the Mago day within us. It isn't any wonder why he is the person or being behind protecting and promoting that murderous practice of elective abortion. And that's not a political statement. That's a biblical statement of God's truth. But you know what? The gospel can forgive abortion. The gospel can forgive anyone who comes and kneels before Jesus and asks for forgiveness. It is not the unforgivable sin. Those are the theological and biblical truths on murder. Now let's differentiate between that and killing. And this part I'm, I stated very emphatically and very specifically. When is taking the life of another human being either necessary or permissible? And again, I frame this point very specifically. And let me explain that a little bit. Most people here know I have a concealed carry permit to carry a pistol. And usually when I'm outside of town and I'm not at work, I generally have a pistol on my hip. And I hope and pray the only time it leaves my holster is to poke holes in paper at the range. That's all I really want to do with it. But I know that within my mindset I have a very strong 
need to protect people. I have a very strong need to help people. It's probably why I have all the jobs I do that have to do with helping people, being a paramedic, being a firefighter, um, being former security officer. Those, those jobs just speak to who I am. And if I saw an act of evil, like a, an active shooting situation that would harm the life of others, I would need some type of tool to respond to that. And let's face it, I am not in shape like Bruce Lee anymore. And even Bruce Lee couldn't stop a bullet. So you need something to deal with that evil. And part of the training you go through to get that license is something called the use of force continuum. Basically says when you should or can and shouldn't shoot. And I used to have an instructor that would come in and teach concealed carry classes at her old church and she would come in probably every three to six months and do a class for us. And I remember during one of them, I was just sitting in the back running the sound and she was teaching the class and somebody kind of being a, a wise guy said, so yeah, when do I finally get to shoot somebody? And she immediately stomped on that question right there. She said, you know what? That's the wrong question. If you're serious in asking it, I deeply reconsider your, your decision to carry a firearm. The right question is, when do I have to shoot? Or by me not shooting, will more harm come to me or someone else I love? That is the correct question. And that idea is what I'm framing this part of the message in. When is the taking of life necessary or permissible? Now, biblically speaking, the God gives allowances for governments or individuals to take human life. And we're going to look at just a couple of these discussions very briefly because, honestly, each of these deserve their own sermon. But I'm going to go through them very quickly. The first one is what is called a just or justifiable war. What is a just war? So September 11th, 2001, it's a very hotly debated topic of what is a just war. And most people, when they refer to this, they go back to the Christian theologian St. Augustine who, who lived in, during the Middle Ages when they discussed this. And these were some of Augustine's criteria. Number one, self-defense of your nation or defending otherwise innocent life against an immediate threat. Now, immediate threat means that there is an imminent invasion or there is an actual invasion going on right now. Or there is a definable threat that is going to happen. This does not mean that we go and get to nuke the Ayatollah Khomeini or whoever over, over in Iran or, or Kim Jong-un because they're spouting off at the mouth again saying they're going to destroy the United States. They have no way to do it. So us just nuking them based off the babblings of a madman would not be a just thing to do. Now, if they develop an intercontinental ballistic missile, I would be a little bit more worried. That might be a just reason to go to war. But just simply just... Um, going off and, and doing things willy-nilly is not a justifiable um, reason for war. Number two, war should never deliberately target non-combatants or civilians. And we understand, particularly in World War II, Korea, wars before then, that civilians were always casualties of war. You cannot carpet bomb a city without hitting a civilian. Now we are very a lot more specific with our bombings and, and try not to, to have any civilian casualties. But Augustine's point in this is that 
human beings should never be used as shields, nor should they be deliberately targeted. Augustine's third criteria was proportional response. In other words, we cannot nuke somebody if they attack one of our ships. We can't go back and nuke an entire country for the actions of, of a couple of people. That's kind of like shooting the kid who walks upon your lawn. I mean, it's, it's, it's way out of proportion to what happened. His fourth criteria was rapid conclusion. If a war is necessary, it should be fought to achieve victory as quickly as possible so as many lives as possible may be saved. Number five, that a war is winnable. We should not go to war if we have no chance of winning. For example, in the 60s, we blockaded Cuba to keep the Soviet Union from putting ICBMs there. Now, it would have been disastrous for Cuba to declare war on us because they had no way of winning a war with the United States. Absolutely no way. We would have carpet-bombed Cuba into oblivion, and that we wouldn't have had to use nukes. We could have used just conventional weapons and just carpet-bombed them into oblivion. Those were Augustine's criteria. Now, in America, we've added a mostly political criterion of establishing justice or freedom or spreading America ideals into areas plagued by oppression, particularly if it affects our national security or our prosperity. And I say they're political criterion because we're kind of selective in how we use it. For example, when's the last time we went into Africa and did anything? And yet there's millions of people dying of genocides and wars and starvation and everything there, but we do very little with the African continent, but if we want to save a nickel on a um, gallon of gas, we'll go into the Middle East tomorrow. So we're a little selective in how we use that. So war, under these certain criteria, is justified in God's sight. But it should always be the last resort. Because we're talking about taking the human life on a grand scale. The second reason that God allows us to take human life is through capital punishment. And I know this is another hotly debated topic and not everybody will agree with this. Many Christians think that since human justice is flawed, that we should never put someone to death for any crime because we could mess up and kill an innocent person. Well, according to criminologists who have studied this matter, they estimate that 4% of the people executed in the United States have been innocent of the crime for which they are convicted. Now, the Bible never allowed the death penalty in cases unless there were at least two witnesses to the crime. There had to be strong, strong, almost overwhelming evidence that, there was, that this crime had been committed. And the Old Testament law allowed for the death penalty. And you know what the death penalty was used for in the Old Testament? Let me just read a couple of things. Premeditated murder. That's kind of a duh. Premeditated murder, you got put to death, stoned to death. Another one that they did, rape. If you got caught raping somebody, you were dead. You were killed. I think that should still be today. Adultery. How many of us would be dead? They included fornication in there, by the way. Blasphemy against God. Ever use God's name in vain in public? You would be stoned to death. Here's an interesting one. And men, this would probably take out just about every one of us. A son's disobedience to his father, particularly in public. I'm glad we didn't follow that because I never would have made it out of my teenage years. 
In our society, the death penalty varies from state to state. Wisconsin does not have a death penalty at this time. But if we were to institute it again tomorrow by law, our way of executing this state is by public hanging. That'd give us something to do on Saturdays, I guess. On the federal level, the death penalty is an option for first, second degree murder or conspiracy to commit either. Terrorism causing death, kidnapping causing death, rape, sexual abuse, or sexual exploitation of a minor causing great physical harm or death, treason or espionage, or uh, other acts of uh, terrorism like that. And that's at the federal level. Those are just a couple. And some would say, well, it sounds like you're kind of going all Old Testament on this. But you have to realize we live in the New Testament of grace, that the death penalty shouldn't be part of the equation anymore because that was kind of Old Testament. I would agree with this, except that the Apostle Paul wrote Romans 13, and that he said that God established human government. And has given the responsibility to human government to, to punish crime. He said, furthermore, that the human government bears a sword to punish evildoers. Now, do you spank people with a sword? Do you build a prison with a sword? You kill people with swords, don't you? A sword's primary mission is to end life. So biblically speaking, human government has the divine right and privilege to execute justice in taking human life under very specific circumstances as long as it's being just and justified in its application. Does that mean it's going to be infallible? No, it's human. And as human, it's not going to be infallible. But biblically speaking, it is prescribed and permitted by God. Another just reason for taking another life is in self-defense. And that's what I started this area of the sermon with, is talking a little bit about self-defense. And again, this is another controversial topic. But it is one spoken about in the Bible in the two, and in the New Testament. Jesus himself spoke about it. First, let's define the term. For, this purpose, for our purposes this morning, self-defense means fighting back against an immediate threat to your life or the life of someone else. Right before he went to the cross, Jesus himself told his disciples in Luke 22 to buy a sword for their personal protection. Again, this wasn't something they're going to spank people with. This isn't something that they're going to just wear on their hip to look cool. This was something to defend themselves. Jesus was not... Repeat, not advocating violence to help spread the gospel. We are not Islam. We do not spread our faith by the point of the sword. He gave them this instruction to allow them to have a limited permission to defend themselves against sudden attacks that might occur by bandits when they're out on the road. There were all kinds of weirdos out there on the road that would um, come and immediate and ride down on you suddenly, kill you and take your money. That is what he is talking about here. That is why this permission for self-defense is a little limited. Because if I decide to go down there on Dewey and Maine today and get up on a soapbox and start preaching the gospel, somebody who doesn't like it, walks up, punches me in the mouth, I do not get to pull out a gun and shoot him, according to Jesus. However, if I'm in a store and someone comes in and starts shooting up a place, we are allowed, and I'd say, at least for myself, obligated to try to intervene and save people's lives. I'll end this part of the sermon by giving a quick quote from 
Edmund Burke. And this sums up our rationale for just war, capital punishment, and self-defense. Edmund Burke said the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Is violence the answer? We wish it wasn't. But sometimes it has to be. We live in a fallen world. And sometimes e evil violence needs to be violently confronted itself. Is it God's best for us? No. But he allows physical force to keep evil at bay in our world. Personally, I look forward to the day where I never have to consider taking another person's life or causing them harm. But that day isn't going to come until Jesus returns and establishes his government on earth. And to that I say, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. Come quickly, God. Let's finish our time here this morning with looking at Jesus' specific teaching on murder. Earlier we read a scripture that showed Jesus identifying Satan as the author of all murders. And Jesus also clarified the sixth commandment in Matthew chapter 5 when he said, it, You have heard that it was said of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say unto you, whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, shall be liable to the fire of hell. Jesus takes the sixth commandment, which was given to the Israelites and was intended to govern them as a nation, and brings it right down to his application to us as individuals. Jesus identifies the cause of most murders right here in this verse. Now, what do we think is the root emotion of murder? What would you, what would, what would you say is the root emotion? Angry. Hatred? Anger? Greed. Greed? Selfishness. Selfishness? Getting close. Sin. Pride? Pride. And oh. no, she didn't get to read the sermon first. No. <laughs> I would say it starts with pride. If you think about it, rage starts with pride. Somebody has hurt you. Jealousy starts with pride. You want something they have. Most anger starts with pride. Somebody, again, has hurt you. Unforgiveness is pride in practice, isn't it? I will never forgive that person. Gossip is pride metastasizing like cancer, spreading anger and hatred to somebody else. And that's why Jesus said in the Beatitudes that even pride and anger can lead you to hell. Anger comes from pride which causes a hardness of heart and an unforgiveness. And those are the roots of murder in most cases. We look at our inner cities. We look at places like Milwaukee, Detroit, or most famously right now, Chicago. You know, the people of Chicago are actually calling Chicago Chirac, meaning it's just as violent as Iraq right now. Most murders there are over pride. Pride in gang affiliation, pride in protecting turf, pride in being disrespected. You just look at them wrong. They're disrespected, and now i got to kill you. That's the way they're looking at it. We can murder with a knife or a gun, or we can murder with our words. That's why Jesus said, 
Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the fire of hell. I close today with this. There's a story in the news right now about a woman named Michelle Carter. Michelle Carter is accused of convincing her boyfriend to kill himself through a series of text messages. And eventually she convinced him to do it. He went out and he sat in a car that was running inside of a garage to die of carbon monoxide poisoning. At one point he changed his mind and started to leave the car and said, I can't do this, and she told him to quit being a wimp and get back in the car. And finished the job. And he did it. He died. You know the reason she did it? Prosecutors of the case said it's because she wanted the attention. She wanted everybody to feel sorry for her, being the girlfriend of the guy who committed suicide. She wanted attention. God help us. Murder is a reality in our day and age. May we never become so desensitized to it that we don't understand the horror that God sees it as. And may its seed never be found in us and are allowed to root in any of our hearts.